Because we don't have so much time today, I'm not going to do a detailed introduction about Imam Ghazali Rabbatallah's life or the text Ahyal al because I've done a detailed introduction to him and his life for one and a half hours when we taught other texts of his in Birmingham and also in Nottingham. And that is online. A person can listen to that. Those courses were from 10 to 6. And today we have from 11.20 to 3.20. Right? I'll just tell you this much. That this is an excerpt from his work, Ahya'ul-Muddin. I'll just tell you this much. Imam al-Ghazairi Mullah was born in 1058 AD. And he passed away in 11.11. Which from solar years is 900 years ago. 900 years ago. And it's quite amazing that 900 years after he passed away, people are still translating his works into English and Turkish and Persian and Urdu and still studying and learning from his works. For those of you who are there at Fajr, we had mentioned that there are continually new methods, but sometimes there is such much barakah in an old method to reach a goal that the Ummah keeps using that old method. So Imam al-Zalajim is like that. And the ways of all of the awliya, mashayikh, shaykh, abdakad, jallani, imam haudin, bukhari, they're like that. That their ways are old, their methods were old, but they still have a lot of relevance and a lot of barakah in them today. So, because we have less time today, I'm going to go a little bit faster than we normally do. We can cover all of these eight things. So if you open up, and I don't know, if, for me it's page 21, the same edition. Okay. Okay. This is known in Quran as Ukhuwa or Ikhwa. And what does this mean? It means that the Mu'mineen are brethren. So the word here used as brotherhood, but in some sense, and without having to get into a whole discussion of gender interaction, in some sense some of these things are going to apply to all of your fellow mu'mineen. Definitely would apply for women and f- women believers and fellow women believers, so sisterhood. It would definitely apply, obviously, for male believers and fellow male believers, brotherhood. And a few of these things may even apply. I'm not going to highlight them right now because all, all the audience today is men. Few of them even apply to the extent that even a woman who is a fellow Muslimah, she also would have some rights over you. Not in terms of necessarily interaction and emotional engagement, but perhaps some rights in terms of khidmah or some help that should she require it. For example, if there's an aged woman, a widowed woman, there are many rights she has over her fellow believers, even if, even and including the male believers. But here, Imam Ghazali, I'd like to put this a bit in context is talking generally about the rights that male believers have with one another, but there is a little bit, and it's going to come every now and then, more than every now and then, there's a tinge that he's also talking about, what we call Adab al-Salikin, that the brethren on the path, the fellow seekers of the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, 
the fellow travelers on the path of Teskiah and Esan and Tesawaf and Suluk, the other that they should have with one another, sometimes that also comes in. But not because these two things are separate, but in fact that that was supposed to be the greatest model of brotherhood, the greatest model of compassion, that the love and respect and compassion and kindness and gentleness that two fellow students of the same teacher or two fellow seekers on the same path leading towards Allah SWT that they should have with one another. And hence you're going to find that Imam al many times he will quote from Quran, he will quote from the Sunnah, but he's also going to cite sayings of the Mashaykh, of Tasawwuf, of the Awliyaullah, of their teachings of Adab and Akhlaq, and sometimes cite examples of the camaraderie and chivalry and close-knit relationship between fellow seekers on the path. Alright? Some of this, some of you are going to find quite intense, uh, and certainly the modern mind is going to rebel at a few things. In fact, definitely at the very first chapter, it's going to hit you very hard, because it has to do with money. Right? Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Know that the contract of brotherhood is a bond between two persons, like the contract of marriage between two spouses. So what is Imam Ghazali trying to say here? That in marriage nikah, there's an akad, there's an actual conscious contractualization of a relationship that a person consciously enters into a bond. Here, just by being a fellow Muslim, whether you knew it or not, you actually entered into a bond with every single fellow believer. And a one-to-one -one bond with every single one of them. So in marriage, you get a bond with one spouse, by entering Iman, you get bonds and links with 1.2 billion Mu'mineen and Muslimin all over the Muslim world. Just for just as marriage gives rise to certain duties which must be fulfilled when it is entered into, and that's a whole separate subject, so does the contract of brotherhood confer upon your brother a certain right touching your property, your person, your tongue, and your heart, your tongue and your heart by way of forgiveness, prayer, sincerity, loyalty, Relief and considerateness. So all of these are eight items that he's going to deal separately in a separate fussel or in a separate chapter. The first duty is the right over your wealth and property, your assets, your mal. So the first duty is the material one. Sayyidina Rasulullah said, The two brothers, again by brother here it means two fellow male mu'minin, or many times two, two fellow mu'minin, even or fellow mu'minat, are likened to a pair of hands, one of which washes the other. Right? So the first thing Imam the comments here is that Sayyidina Rasulullah chose the simile. Simile means the likeness, the metaphor, the example of two hands, rather than hand and foot, because the pair are mutual assistant towards a single aim. So the first thing to know that the nature of this bond is pairing. The like in chemistry, it has been a long time. What is it? Covalent bonds, right? And pairing, right? So every single, right, Muslim is part of this huge molecule <laughs> known as the Ummah. And we have bonds with every single other atom of the Ummah. Radically different, again, like I was mentioning to some of you yesterday, that secular philosophy teaches the concept of individualism, which at its highest articulation they used to call it atomism. And they actually suggested that every human being is a separate atom and not part of any molecule, not part of any broader substance. So here, no. Imam al-Ghazayi makes it clear that no, it's not like that. And the second you enter Iman, you become part of a very large group. And you form bonds with each and every single one. And why is it appearing? 
because just like the two hands, what he said, they have the same goal and their mutual assistance to one another. So the, what is the purpose of the hands? To grab something. To stave off something. To protect oneself against harm. To acquire something that one needs, such as food. Right? So the two hands means that the two mu'mineen have the same goal. Because they're not mu'min. Their goal is Allah SWT. And they're going to be of mutual assistance to one another. So that's why in our deen you will find throughout the deen there's emphasis on jama'ah. Allah Ta'ala does not want you to go it alone. Allah Ta'ala does not want you to take a solo flight towards Him. Allah Ta'ala does not expect you to be successful in that. He wants that you should link yourself with others. Especially for men. Pair in jama'at. Hajj offered in jama'at. Hajj could have been at any time of the year. Every one of you come alone. Anyone can come to Arafah alone. Could have been like that. No. <laughs> come to Arafah in a jama'ah. And stand there all ummah on one, all ummah who can come for hajj. Stand there on one single day, Yom Al-Arafah. And pray to Allah SWT as jama'ah. That's what Allah SWT also says in Quran. وَتُوبُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ جَمِيعًا That you should make tawbah to Allah SWT collectively. So it is with two, so it is with true brothers that they are like two hands. Their brother is only complete when they are comrades, means they are fellows, they assist one another, they mutually assist one another in a single enterprise. In a sense, the two are like one person. This is another deed of Sayyidina Rasulullah Sallallahu The whole ummah is like one body. The entire ummah is like one entity. That's what the Prophet was trying to say. This entails a common participation in good fortune and bad. What does that mean? That if good befalls you, you must share that. And remember, this is the chapter about wealth. So the implication he's going to take this is that if one part of the ummah or one individual in the ummah has been blessed by Allah Subhanahu wa Taala with wealth, with good fortune financially, then that good fortune must also fall on his brother. How could one Muslim have wealth and the other Muslim remain poor? How could one Muslim receive any bounty and blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the other Muslim be unaffected by that bestowal? No, they're going to share. There's going to be mutual sharing. Similarly, if it is bad, then if a tragedy, travesty, in this case financial, Poverty afflicts one Muslim, it should afflict the heart of the other one. It may not afflict the lifestyle of the other one. And they should have a partnership in the future as in the present moment. And this partnership and sharing isn't just for the here and now, but it's all the way lasting as long as a person is alive. And what does that require? An abandonment of possessiveness and selfishness. So this is what we call hirs. That you should have to abandon greed. That I want this for myself, and I want this for myself, and I want to save so much for myself and this for myself and this for myself but when it comes to donation I give this little bit when it comes to savings I save this much no we should view that our savings account although it may be in our name it belongs to all of the brethren it belongs to all of the brethren now he gives this three degrees and thus sharing one's wealth and property and assets with one fellows, one's fellow Muslim there are three degrees three darajat three levels in which a person can do it. The lowest degree. Lowest is where you place your fellow Muslim brother on the same footing as your slave or your servant. Attending to his need from your surplus. Some need befalls him when you happen to have more than you require to satisfy your own needs. So then you give him spontaneously. Not obliging him to ask. To oblige him to ask is the ultimate shortcoming in brotherly duty. What does it mean by treating him like your slave and servant? What it means is that you don't give him parity. You're not treating him to, as an equal. You're letting him live in a lower financial state than you. 
you don't feel it necessary to raise him up to the equal egalitarian financial state as you. So he's lower than you. But while he's lower than you, if he falls into a state of need, haja, then you will fulfill that need. You will fulfill that need. And then you will give him. So this you can be considered as as and need, when needed basis. Charity will be given on a as and when needed basis. Not Charity will not be given to empower them socially, to uplift them economically, to give them, take them out of the class they're in. No, the lowest level is that charity will be given on an as and when needed basis. You would find that the best of people today are like this. The best are only on the first degree. But even here Imam al-Ghazai made a fascinating thing which still a lot of us lack. He mentioned the adab of being on this first degree. And what is that adab? That you give it to him spontaneously means you're not obliging him to ask. You don't put him in that position where he has to ask. To oblige him to ask is the ultimate shortcoming in brotherly duty. This is what a lot of people we don't do. If somebody asks so as and when needed basis, when will you determine when there's need? A person themselves, they're not interested. Okay, if he asks me, I will give it to them. Some people even think, no, if he truly needed, he would ask me. They think like that. And they even think that because they're good friends with that person. They think, no, no, I'm, I'm very good friends with that person. And so if he ever needs something, I know he would ask me. So if he hasn't asked me, he must be fine. No. Imam Abu said, that is too laid back. That is too passive. It was our job to know the condition of our brethren. And our job for ourselves to be able to check and assess whether they had need or not. We should not put them in that position where they have to present and ask their need to us. So, we should not ha- make them feel that they have to present their need for us, that they have to ask us. No. To oblige him to ask is the ultimate shortcoming. Ultimate. Right there in the first couple of pages. Ultimate shortcoming in brotherly duty. Never make them ask in front of you. You should want for yourself and for your fellow Muslim that the only being we ever ask is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And whenever we need something in this world, I should give it to him without asking. Because that is, and the crux of all of this, and it's going to come later, but I'll just say it in the start because all of you know, I'm sure most of you know the hadith, the Sayyidina Rasulullah that none of you has perfected and completed their iman until he loves for his fellow believer what he loves for himself. And what should we love for ourselves? We would love for ourselves that we should never have to ask. You would never want to ask in front of anyone. You may think he's your good friend. Okay, now think, would you like to go ask him for money? He is your good friend. Let's say he's as good a friend to you as you think you are to him. Put yourself in the role reversal. If you are in need, even with the fact that he's your good friend, would you be comfortable going to him to ask for money? I think most of us would say no. (laughs) I would be embarrassed having to ask him money, no matter how good a friend he is to me. So why did you think then so quickly that he would come to you if you ever needed it? Hmm? So this was the adab of the lowest degree. However, now look at the next two degrees. At the, so those of you who just come, it's page 22. Page 22, right in the middle of page 22 in the italics. At the second degree, you place your brother on the same footing as yourself. Not lower, same footing. You are content to have him as partner in your property and to treat him like yourself to the point of letting him share equally. So you tell him that, look, whatever is mine is equally yours. You're free to take whatever I have. I have two sweaters, one is yours. You see, I have this, it's yours, to share with me. 
Al-Hasan, this refers to Al-Hasan al-Basri, Allah Ta'ala, Sayyid al-Ta'ibin. One of the... Sayyid al-Ta'ibin, one of the greatest leaders of the followers of the companions of Sayyidina Rasulullah Al-Hasan al-Basri. He once said, he said that there was once a person who would split his waistband between himself and his brother. Those of you who are Desi may understand that there's a little like, it wouldn't work with belts. <laughs> You'd just be standing there with two half pieces of belt not knowing what to do. Huh? Tells you. Huh? You need to have... Huh? <laughs> right? This long... How can I explain it? This long rope that is used to tie the loose baggy trouser. Right? That you strip that in half, even that he would share with his fellow Muslim. Right? At the third degree, highest of all, that you prefer your brother to yourself and you set his need before your own. You would rather have them do it. You would rather have them benefit from it. You would rather have them enjoy it. So let's say you have enough money that only one child can go to a good school and the other child has to go to the poor school. You would rather have your brother send their children to the good school and you will deal with the situation of sending your child to the less good school. Can you imagine who could think like that? We work so hard and strive for the money, for the education of our children. We would never even in the farthest remote reaches of our imagination have made that intention that no, I won't do it for my children. I'll do it for so-and-so's children who lives in the disadvantaged neighborhood and I will pay for his children to go to the good education and I'll send my children to the disadvantaged school. Never could we dream like that. Allah Akbar. So this is the third degree, the highest of all. Self-sacrifice is one of the fruits of this degree. So this third degree, what happens here? A person slaughters their nafs. They lose their own desire, their own wishes, their own ambitions. They prefer their fellow Muslim to their own self. Now here tradition tells how Sufi fraternity. A little bit here the translator and I will just comment on this once. I won't I'll be able to take the time out to mention it every single time. Obviously sometimes when people translate certain things in English, uh, some people give it their Judeo-Christian equivalents. But I don't think that conveys the right sense. I would never like to use the word fraternity, uh, right? Uh, not just because of what happens in American universities, which means your JCR and MCR. Every college here is a fraternity. They someday. Cambridge Lurk is somebody, I think. Alright? So, tradition here but also doesn't mean hadith. He's just saying that transmitted reports from the early Muslims, right, mention that there was a group of people who were seeking the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they were slanderously misrepresented to one of the caliphs one of the rulers of the Muslim empire at that time. So he ordered that they should be executed. Because he must have found, in his view, that they were guilty of committing apostasy, unbelief. So one of their number was Abul Hussein al-Nuri. I've also seen it sometimes in Abul Hassan al-Nuri. And so what happened was they were gathered and they were actually about to be executed. So Abul Hassan al-Nuri, he put himself in the front. And the king was an executioner were surprised. And then so the king called him aside and he has given the story in a bit more abbreviated form. And the king, what happened was that the king, let me tell you the complete story, what happened was that the king actually when the group was called in front of him, he knew Abul Hassan al-Nuri and he knew him to be a pious man, a righteous man. 
And he was a bit surprised. Okay, now this group that I've been called includes this person. And I know him to be a righteous, pious, upright, mutaki, saleh, mu'min. I've already issued the order <laughs> that this group should be executed. And Abu Hassan al-Nuri, he, kept put, he put himself on the front of the line. So the king told the executioner, Okay, no, why don't you go over there and tell them to line up again? Thinking that now he would be on the back of the line. And his intention was that at the end he would spare Abu Hassan al-Nuri. And say in front of the court that, okay, so many have been executed, now it's enough, okay, the ones that are left can go. So when they told the executioner to move to the other side, then all of the people who had been brought for execution were moved that way. Abu Hassan quickly moved again to the front of the line. And when he moved again to the front of the line, then the king said, now what am I going to do? So he asked him. So when he asked him, then he replied, I wish that my brothers rather than I should have that moment to live. In other words, now it's a question of life. And whoever dies first will have less life. The ones who die at the end of the line will have few more moments of life. I would prefer my brothers to have life. Life itself. I would prefer them to live more minutes than me. That's why I present my first. And then the end of the story, which he's saying, this to cut a long story short, was the cause of all of their lives being saved. So now the king realized that if he is true, he is true a believer. When he saw his other bin akhlaq, he saw that he was the living embodiment of that hadith, that you shall love for your fellow believer what you love for yourself. And he realized that if this person is the associate of this whole group, this whole group must be righteous and pious, and I must have been misinformed. And he waived his order of execution, and all of them were spared. And also lesson of the story shows us that there's barakah and adab. Many times you don't realize that. And sometimes when some of the joint ventures and projects that we do, they fail or they collapse, or they don't take off as much as we want them to do, is because we didn't have other with our fellow project workers. We didn't have that other. And sometimes loss of adab leads to loss of barakah. And loss of barakah, even if you are doing a project of khidmah, loss of barakah will mean loss of khidmah. You will end up doing less khidmah than what you wanted. Because you had less barakah in that khidmah work, because you had less adab with one another in that work of khidmah. Okay. Then Imam Ghazali says that if you do not find yourself at any one of the any of these stages in relation to your brother, that at the very least you should treat him as somebody that you will help when he's in need, right? If you don't find that, then you must realize that the uk, the contract of brotherhood, is not yet concluded in your inner self. Inside, you don't really view that person as your fellow Muslim. You don't really view them as your fellow believer. You're not really treating them as your brother. All that lies between you is just a formal connection. Right, that's what we say today. Oh, brother, we love. We say this word very formally. Salam alaikum, brother. How are you doing, brother? <laughs> is that that's not brotherhood? Brotherhood isn't just the mere exchanging of salams. Is that all you do with your own blood brother? No, with your blood brother, you try to keep track of him. You know what's going on in his life. You try to make sure you find out about his worries even before he has to tell them to you. Right? This is that if you don't have any of these three, then all that lies between you is just a mere formality. A superficial connection, lacking real force that has no haythiyah, no haqiqah, no value and reality in reason or religion. Even deed will not give any value to such a relationship, and even akal would not attribute any value to such a mere formality type relationship. Maimun ibn al-Mahranimullah said that one who is content not to put his brother first might as well be brother to the people of the graves. And we would not want to use the word tombs here. That's not what's Right? Ahlul Kabur, the people of the graves, the people in the cemetery, the people in the graveyards. May as well be a brother to them. Right? Means that he's as good as himself also is as good as dead for those people. Not a living brother, not a real brother. 
As for the lowest degree, this is also unacceptable to truly religious people. That if you really want to be salihin, siddiqin, sadiqin, that lowest degree is not going to cut it. You have to at least view the fellow brother as equal. If not, prefer him to yourself. So Uthubal al-Ghulam came to the house of a man whose brother he had become, saying that I need 4,000 of your money. The other said to him, take 2,000. Utbah declined the offer, saying that you have preferred this world to Allah SWT. Are you not ashamed to claim brotherhood in Allah SWT when you can say just a thing? What does this have to do? Sometimes, some believers, they would form a nisbat or a bond of brotherhood with one another. For example, this is a sunnah. Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam and Sahaba Karam, when they migrated from Makkah Makarama to Medina Manora. So the migrants were called Mahajirun. And the receivers, the helpers of Akka Ansar. So Sayyidina Rasulullah not for every single one of them, for a large majority of them, he paired them off. Nisbati Mu'akhat, this is called in Arabic. So one Muhajir was made brother of one particular Ansar. One Makki Sahaba was made brother of one particular Madani Sahaba. They were paired off. And sometimes later on in history, sometimes people revived the Sunnah. Right? I know myself when we were in New York, and there were a few people who came from Pakistan. So our Sheikh actually paired us off. So for those of you, I was paired with Sheikh Zafarsan. He was Muhajir and I was his Ansar. Then when I moved to Lahore, I said, No, I'm Muhajir, you have to be my Ansar. But he didn't take it up. Allah <laughs> Akbar. So at some point this happened with Utbah al-Ghulam. That he had been paired off with someone. So he needed some money. So I said, I need 4,000. And the implication here is that Utbah had the money. And this is what we do sometimes. Notice this attitude. We do this sometimes with people who are close to us. We bargain with a person on their need. And this is not a financial issue. We're not selling them a commodity. They need 4,000. We think to ourselves, okay, well, immediately the cold calculating mind starts. Well, I'm not the only person he knows. So probably I could give him 2,000. He could probably get 500 from that person. And probably 300 from that one. And 200 from that one. 1,000 from that one. So he's asking me for a frog. Give him two. This takes a fraction of a second. This math coprocessor, which is love for dunya that's in the mind and brain of a person, in a fraction of a second they make that calculation. It's okay, I'll give you two. Right? So Uthba said, oh, you, what happened to you? <laughs> what type of brotherhood is that? If you have four and I need four, I get four. <laughs> and it also shows you how frank the early Muslims were. They would say it. <laughs> he said it, Jakarta, we say it, or the Karajah. You say it in English, he frankly, immediately responded. He said, you preferred this world to Allah. You preferred the dunya to Allah. You preferred the dunya to Allah SWT. Are you not ashamed to claim brotherhood in deen, lillah, fillah, relationship with me for the sake of Allah SWT, the name of Allah SWT, and you say such a thing? So then Imam Ghazali gives advice. And who is he giving advice to just to be, just to be clear also and maybe so that we don't feel too hopeless? Imam Ghazali is giving advice to those people who he's advising above. Who is that? He said that if you want to be truly religious people, the lowest degree is not going to be good enough for you. And secondly, now here, you ought to avoid mu'amalat. Not saying spiritual feelings, feelings of love, no. Mu'amalat with a person who is at the lowest stage of brother, you want to avoid that. You don't want to become business partners with such a person. You don't want to have a joint entrepreneurial venture with such a person. He says you should avoid that. 
And then he quotes Abu Hazm said that if you have a spiritual brother, do not deal with him in your worldly affairs. By this he meant if he is at this state. And this is a well-known thing. Unfortunately, you'd be amazed in Muslims that if you have a close Muslim friend, one of the best ways to lose him as a close Muslim friend is to make him your business partner. <laughs> one of the best ways to break your friendship and for some university students even being a roommate. <laughs> yeah, they can't even share one kitchen together. <laughs> they were great friends when they lived separately. But you put them together and then you can see. <laughs> so Imam Ghazali, they knew, they saw this, they knew people. You know, like a person who has 50 years of experience, a woodsman, he knows all of the different types of wood. He knows maple, he knows oak, he knows cherry, whatever you have in England, right? He knows which one looks good with one another, which one can be joined with another. They were the masters of hearts. They had worked with so many different types of hearts, of so many different types of sinners. They knew what would work with what. So he was telling that, look, if a person hasn't got past the first level, don't engage in mu'amalat, don't engage in financial dealings with them. It will be a source of hurt and grief and sorrow for the both of you. As for the highest degree, this corresponds to the description of the true mu'mineen mentioned by Allah SWT in Quran, and that is this concept of shura, that they agree on their affairs by mutual consultation, and they spend freely of what we have bestowed upon them. So what is the interesting nisbet here that Allah SWT is mentioning in the Quran? They do mutual shura mushawira in Urdu mashfara, right? Because they're viewing themselves as equals. But what do they do? They also spend freely. Spend freely. So they may decide and discuss the issue together as peers, but they spend freely on one another. They're willing to spend freely on the other person. And this is at highest degree. Again, the highest degree was to prefer our brother to ourselves. Topic 24. So Imam al-Zadiyatani just explains that ayah. That is that they are co-owners of worldly goods without distinctions of status. Again, to take your roommate example, one fridge. One fridge. How many edible items can that fridge own? If you are on second or third degree, if you are second degree, then whatever you put in the fridge, you will be happy that if your roommate shares in it. And whatever he puts in the fridge, you will be happy to share in it. If you are on third degree, you will notice what it is that he likes and you will buy that for him. Let's say, for example, you like orange juice, he likes apple juice. Next time you shop, you won't just buy orange juice, you'll buy apple juice. You'll buy it for him. Third degree means, let's say you only have $2. You can either buy orange juice or apple juice. You will buy apple juice and put it there for him. And silently, you won't, you won't let him know. That's another problem with us. Oh brother, you know, I went to the store and I only had two pounds. And I knew that because you liked apple juice, I bought apple juice. Losing points with Allah SWT to gain points with makhluk. Common mistake people make. <laughs> no, do it for the sake of, no need to tell him. When you made him feel it, you lost. <laughs> you lost the brotherly feeling. You're supposed to do it for him in a way that he never knew. He should be thinking, oh, seems that my roommate starts liking apple juice. I'm rubbing off on him. <laughs> seems like he's buying apple juice now. Right? But mashallah. And now, yes, I know all of you, inshallah, may never say it, but do you feel it in your heart? Do you open the door and see he's taking the last croissant? Do you feel it? Does it hurt you? A little bit. A little sting. Do you get the sting? You're not at the right level. Did you get that little sting? Over he took the last croissant? Croissant? Huh? What is it? 30p? 50p? Hmm? You should be happy that Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, I thought that that was Allah Ta'ala's risk for me. Ya Allah, I'm so grateful for you that you made it a means of risk for my room. 
I love you, Allah. You're so kind to me. <laughs> you made better use of it than I thought for myself. That's how you should feel when you see the croissant is gone. The Ben and Jerry's ice cream is finished. Huh? Yes, that's how you should feel. <laughs> if you have me ever as a roommate, you'll understand what I mean. <laughs> yes, Lord. <laughs> Poor my dog. Actually, it just happened a few weeks ago. Somebody came and they, they gifted to me Ben and Jerry's, but my daughters happened to see it. Here they went to sleep at night. I had the whole tub. They woke up in the morning. I must have been dreaming all night about the Ben and Jerry's. In the morning, no kid has ice cream. At 7 a.m., they went straight for the Ben and Jerry's. It wasn't there. She looked, Zainab, she found it in the trash. They came running to me, Baba, Baba, why did you eat my Ben and Jerry's? Ya Allah. Caught the next morning. Ya Allah. Allah Akbar. But she's my daughter, so you cannot expect her at that young age to be at the third degree. Allah <laughs> Akbar. Alright, without distinctions. Okay, there were those who would shun the fellowship of a man who used the expression, my shoe, thereby attributing to himself, Allah Akbar. He used the shoe as his. I can't be his roommate. Mahakmar. Ajeeb. Ajeeb. Fatah Mosali, Rimullah Ta'ala, once came to her brother's house while he was away. Telling his brother's wife to bring out his chest, he opened it and took from it what he needed. What does this mean? It means his money chest. So he went to somebody's house, and obviously he may have needed some money. But he wasn't there. He said, no problem. He told the wife that, okay, you know, wherever he keeps the money, bring me his wallet. <laughs> Look at that. Bring me his wallet. And he opened the wallet and took whatever he needed. Now when that person came home and he was told that this is what happened, what do you say? If what you say is true, so he had an attendant, uh, a slave, and he told her that if what you say is true, you are free. Because he was so happy. Alhamdulillah, Allah Ta'ala has made this fellow Muslim brother of mine so comfortable with me, so free with me, that when I wasn't home, he felt he could take my wallet and take money. I'm so happy. Allah Akbar. I'm so happy he took my ATM card without even asking me and he made as much withdrawal as he needed. Yes, and that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. So, so delighted was he at his brother's deed. Once, uh, once a tabi came to Sayyidina Abu Hurairah and said that I wish to take you as my brother in Allah SWT. So Sayyidina Abu Hurairah said, do you know what that means? And he said, no. He said that you have no greater right, and obviously the translator has done it for you here, that you have no greater right to your pounds or pence, the asl must be dinanir and dirahim. You have no greater right to your money than I have. Once we are brethren, we are the same. What is your mal is my mal, and what is my mal is your mal. So he said, oh, I'm not, reached. I'm not ready for that yet. <laughs> I'm not ready for that yet. Then I said, okay, you can leave me. Ali ibn al-Husayn, rahimahullah ta'ala, Right, so this is the great grandson of Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam. He once said to a person that does one of you put his hand in the pocket or purse means wallet here of his brother and take what he needs without permission? And they said, No, none of us would do that with one or one another. He said, Then you're not brothers. You're not actually brothers. Until you feel that level of closeness that you can take money of the wallet out of the other person. I told you the first chapter will be difficult for you. <laughs> when we started, a couple of you came late. First chapter is going to be the, one of the most difficult ones for the contemporary Muslim, right? Some people called upon Al Hassan Al Basri and asked him, Abu Sayyid, this was his kunya, have you prayed your salah? He said yes. So okay, we were asking because the people in the market they have not yet prayed. So say Hassan Al Basri, one of the greatest ulama of the Tabin, he said, who takes his deen from the people of the market? I hear that one of them would refuse his brother a penny. And Al Hassan said as if this had amazed him. 
What does it mean? So he wasn't mm, denigrating them because they were market people. Not like that. What was the thing that made him now scoff at the people in the market? What was the thing, or maybe scoff at Jesus? What was the thing about them that made him think that they should not be followed? That they would refuse their brother a penny. No credit. <laughs> no credit. Alright? Once a person came to Ibrahim ibn Adam ta'ala, as the latter was leaving for Bayt al-Muqaddas, may Allah ta'ala restore Bayt al-Muqaddas to us and enable all of us to leave and visit it one day. So the person came and said that, I want to be your companion on this journey. I want to also come along. So I said, okay, you can come along on condition that I have more right to your goods than you yourself do. I see you have this nice big suitcase with you and I have my little rucksack with me. Huh? <laughs> So if I have more right to your goods than you... So he said, no. <laughs> he said, okay, I, at least I admire your sincerity. At least you're being honest with me. At least you're honest that you wouldn't be able to do that. Now Ibrahim ibn Adam Allah would never differ with a man who accompanied him on a journey. And he would only choose for a companion someone who is in harmony with himself. So it also shows a person can and maybe should look at what we call munasabah. Munasabah means compatibility, congeniality, affinity. Right? Now, I'm not talking, we're not talking about here in terms of required mu'amalat, but in extra mu'amalat, right? In extra mu'amalat, in extra interaction with fellow Muslims, you should interact with those who you know you can successfully interact with, that you can mutually, beneficially interact with, that you have compatibility with, you have affinity with. Okay. On one occasion, his traveling companion was a sandal thong merchant at a certain Staging post means a resting point on the journey. Someone presented Ibrahim bin Adam with a bowl of soup. He opened his companion's bag. He took out some of the thongs. So, you know, the thong is a piece of the sandal. So, this person was a person who manufactured and sold that particular piece that is used in the assembly of a sandal. And he dropped them in the bowl and he returned it to the person who gave them that bowl of soup. When his companion came along, he asked, Where, oh, where, where are those thongs that are in my bag? So he said that that soup that I ate, what did it cost? You must have given him two or three songs. Be generous and generosity will be shown to you. So what happened here? What he did was that, maybe maybe it wasn't clear to you, after eating the soup, he put the thongs in. And maybe you thought that he put the thongs in on the soup. After eating the broth, it was a gift from the person, then he wanted to return back the bowl in which the broth was given, right? And then he decided that I have to give that person something. Now, I have nothing to give him, but my traveling companion is carrying his business goods, his thongs, wherever he's going to take them and trade them. So I'll take two out from that, put them in the bowl in that way. We can do khidmat of that person who sent his super khidmat to us. Right? So when the traveling companion came back, he said, oh, two of my thongs are missing. So he said, no, we have to be generous to them. Be generous and generosity will be shown to you. This can be understood in two ways. One way, Ibrahim bin Adam was teaching him, right, that be generous, give of your thongs, and Allah Ta'ala will continue to send generosities to you. Or he was trying to do amal on this himself, that okay, look, this person has sent soup to me. He's being generous to me. I should now become the second half of this. Generosity should be shown to him. I should also return him a gift. Even though he gave it to me, not selling the soup, not expecting any return, but he was generous to me. The adab of my deed teaches me that I should be generous to him. I had nothing though, so I had to take two of your thongs in order to fulfill that teaching of deen and to become generous back with him. Then Ibrahim bin Adam once gave a donkey belonging to his companion without his permission to a man he saw walking. 
Perfect, man. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Right, we take the keys of your car and give it to the poor fellows on the bicycle. Uh, when you don't even know it. Huh? So when his companion came along, he said nothing and did not disapprove. So now this is the successful example. Imam is giving the example. He's showing you by example what is the munasbah. Travel with that person who knows what you're going to do. What's the greatest story of this? Khizr radiallahu anhu. And Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam tries to become his traveling companion. And what does Khizr tell him? He tells him, you're not going to be able to have sabr with me. You're not going to be able to handle me as a traveling companion. He says, no, no, I can. I can't. I insist. Three chances he got and then three strikes you're out. Hmm? This is now the separation, the parting of the ways between me and you. So you can say that lesson from Quran also. That if there's no munasabah, if there's no understanding, if there's no trust, right? Then you may not be well advised to pick that person as a companion. Sayyidina Umar Anhuma son said that one of the companions of Sayyidina Rasulullah was given the head of a sheep. So this is a hadith narrated by Abdullah ibn Umar So that companion thought to himself that companion thought to himself that my brother such and such he thought of his fellow sahaba at that moment needs it more than I do. So yes I am hungry. And somehow Allah Ta'ala has sent this food for me. But I think I know that so and so is also hungry so I send it over there. And he sent it over there and that person who got it said oh mashallah but then thought, oh, you know, so-and-so was also hungry. He sent it over there. It kept getting sent round and round and round until it came right back to the first person. Allah <laughs> Imagine. Ajeeb. Right? So that person sent it on to another. Thus it was passed from one to another until it came round again to the first after being through seven hands. Seven such Sahaba Ikram preferred their fellow companion over themselves. Allah now we don't know, but in all likelihood, maybe the seventh one said, Okay, Allah really does want to give it to me. So he probably ate it, but so many seven people got so up. You see now, again, when you have more adab, you have more barakah. If he'd eaten it in the beginning, that would have also had barakah in it. But now having the adab enables seven people to get the barakah and sawab and ajr and reward and pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala of preferring their fellow believer to themselves. Because he first initiated the act that he preferred his fellow believer to himself. Masruk uh, was owed a heavy debt. His brother Khaythama was also in debt. So, and doesn't mean his blood brother. right? So Masruk went off and paid his debt. Without his knowing, without Khaythama knowing. And Khaythama went off and paid Masruk's debt without his knowing. So they each paid one another debt. They were more worried about the debt of their fellow brother than our debt. Their own debt. Can you imagine that today? Now I don't want to get into a whole other topic because we don't actually think 99% of the loans that are offered today are not okay. Right, but let's say somebody took even interest-free education loan to study. But now he's graduating and he's thinking, okay, I've got this 5,000 pound loan. And then their other friend also took edu- interest-free, let's say, education loan to study. And he's also graduating and thinking, now I've got this 5,000 pound loan. Right? But then he thinks, oh, but I remember my friend also told me he took the same loan. Okay, what I'll do is I'll work and I'll save, but first I'll pay off his loan. And he'll never know about it. The other one also thought that, okay, I'll work first for top of his loan and he'll never know about it. Can we find such an example like that today? Hmm? <laughs> That's what these people were. But Sayyidina Rasulullah, this is that example I was giving you between Muhajir and Ansar. So he made this nisbati mu'akhat, Prophet between Sayyidina Abdul Rahman ibn Awf and Sa'ad ibn Abdul Rabi 
So the latter offered to put the former, means Sayyidina Saad, offered to put Sayyidina Abdurham first to prefer him, both materially and spiritually. So what did he say? That may Allah Ta'ala bless you in both respects. Thus preferring his brother, so Abdurrahman, the, the, the former that responded to the latter, that may Allah Ta'ala bless you in both respects. Thus preferring his brother in the same way as his brother preferred him. This English is not so good here, but it was as I just read it once and explain it to you. It was as if he accepted then returned the compliment. This is equalizing, whereas the first gesture was preferment. Preferment is worthy of equalizing. What does it mean? It's dua. Okay, so what happened first, that Sayyidina Saad made dua for Sayyidina Abdurrahman. That, oh Allah, may Allah Ta'ala bless you both in monetary risk and also in spiritual risk. May Allah Ta'ala give you higher ranks of taqwa, higher ranks of sabr, higher ranks of tawakkal, and may Allah Ta'ala bless you with ease in this world, with risk, with comfort. Then, he responded back to him, means Sayyidina uh, Abdurrahman responded, responded to Sayyidina Saad and said, no, 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 may Allah Ta'ala bless you in both respects. That you're making du'as for another. May Allah Ta'ala bless you. So no, no, may Allah Ta'ala bless you. <laughs> Ajit, right? Now what is this meaning of preferring and equalizing? Alright. So the first gesture was preferment. And that's an okay. The first value was to give tarji to your fellow Muslim. Means here saying even in du'a. Even in du'a. To prefer another person. But okay, let's say you have a meeting at 9 a.m. It's 8.58 a.m. You have chance to make two minutes dua. But okay, let me give you an example that you would understand. You and your fellow Muslim brother both have an interview at 9 a.m. for the same job. You both show up at 8.58 a.m. You're both sitting in the waiting room. You both have two minutes to make dua. So you spend two minutes making dua that he gets the job. That's preferment. <laughs> that you prefer him over your own self. Equalizing would be you spend one minute that you get the job and one minute dua that he gets the job. <laughs> right? Got it? So that's preferment and equalizing. Abu Sulaiman al-Darani used to say, if I own the whole world, to put in the mouth of a brother of mine means to feed as a morsel. If I could take the whole world and make a morsel, lukma out of it, and feed my fellow Muslim, even then I would feel that I've done too little. He also said, that when I feed a morsel lukma to a brother of mine, I'm feeding it to him, but I feel the taste of it in my own throat. That's what we say in Arabic. It'am. It'am. Feeding another is even more pleasurable than akal ta'am, than eating itself. Or you would say in Urdu, kehlana ka maza, khane ka maza se To feed others is even more pleasurable than eating. So spending on fellow mu'mineen is even worthier than giving sadaqah. This is not zakat here. Sadaqah to the poor. Because zakat can only be given to mu'mineen. So by giving sadaqah to the poor, for Sayyidina Ali Radatana said that 20 dirhams I give to my brother in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are dearer to me than 100 I give in sadaqah to the needy. Right? This is maybe that special case, right? If we told the Nisbat al Sayyidina Ali was a muhajir, he must have, I don't remember now which Ansar he was paired with. He was certainly paired with one of the Ansar. And he also said to make a meal and gather my brother. So this shows you, this is something we're, alhamdulillah, well known for this all over, all over the world. Especially our Arab brothers, mashallah, and even Desi brothers, right? And our this is our deen, walima. This is what we. This is how we show our joy and affection one another over meals. So to make a meal, Sayyidina Allah said, to make a meal and gather my brothers and Allah's mouth around it is dearer to me than to free a slave. Allah, Ajib, it's a person's emotion, a person's feeling. 
Then putting others first, everyone should follow the example of Sayyidina Rasulullah wasallam. He once entered a thicket with one of his sahaba and he gathered two toothpicks. One of them crooked and one of them... Actually, it's not toothpick, it's miswak. Okay? Two miswak, one of them crooked and the other one straight. The straight one, which is considered the nicer one, right? Uh, he gave to his sahaba. When the sahaba said, Ya Rasulullah you are more entitled to the better one than I am, the straight one than I am. So the Prophet responded that, no. Look, when a fellow accompanies a fellow, when a friend accompanies a friend, if only for one hour of the day, he will be asked on the day of judgment to account for that time that he spent in the company of his fellow. Whether he fulfilled his duty to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in that hour, or whether he neglected it. Ya Allah, Sayyidina Rasulullah was thinking that about himself. He's the Prophet, he's the Ummati. Obviously the Prophet should get the nicer one. But he said, no. It's not just my Ummati, he came with me on this journey. He's my traveling companion. So he should, I have to prefer him, I have to give him the better one. And you see, especially our children, uh, <laughs> they're not like that. If you get something, the children, the older one will immediately go and pick the better one for themselves. Right? And maybe not even the children. Same thing, we go back to your croissant. You open up the fridge, there are two croissants. One is slightly bigger, one is slightly smaller. You go for the slightly bigger one. You leave the slightly smaller one for your friend. Or when you eat, huh? some of us when we eat the meal together, they're known, at least on the mother's side, was known which students you should sit with and which you shouldn't sit with. Yes. I was one of the ones that you could sit with, alhamdulillah. Best because I was a slow eater, actually not because I did anything. I remember one student particularly said this to me when we were doing the Tachasas course. He said that you seem that you don't like meat. And I said, oh, I actually like it, but I'm a slow eater and you guys finish it by the time I get a chance to eat. And he smiled, but ever since then he always used to sit with me. <laughs> he saw, but he got the information. <laughs> he got the information and he would love to sit with me. MashaAllah. <laughs> sitting in front of you, where, where is Allah Ta'ala taking our memory? Hmm? I haven't thought about that incident for eight years now. Hmm. So Sayyidina Rasulullah indicated by his own example that putting the companion first, putting one's fellow first is to fulfill one's duty to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because Allah ta'ala has rights over us in terms of our traveling fellows and companions. On another occasion, Sayyidina Rasulullah went out to a well to wash himself at it. Sayyidina Hudayfa took a robe and stood screening the Prophet while he washed, while he bathed. Then Sayyidina Hudayfa sat down to wash himself and then Sayyidina Susam took his turn that okay now I will hold the sheet or the shawl to screen you. So Sayyidina said no 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 Sayyidina Rasul what are you doing? <laughs> huh? My father be your ransom. Fida hmm? may my father be ransomed for you Abi uh, literally it means that I would give up my own father for you and my mother too. Sayyidina Susam don't do that. Don't do khidmat of me. Right? So yet the Prophet said, no, you held the screen for me, I'm going to hold the screen for you. So you can do amal on the sunnah where? You can do amal on the sunnah at the airport when you change for ihram, inshallah ta'ala, when you go for umrah and hajj. Yes, we've done amal on the sunnah. Holding shawl for someone, and then them holding shawl for us. Uh, behind the shawl we <laughs> change from these clothes into libas of ihram, into the two sheets of ihram. So Sayyidina insisted, and what did he say? Each time two people are in company together, look at this teaching, Ajeeb, the dear to God is actually, Ahabbu, the more beloved to Allah, 
is that one of the two who is more kind to his companion? So Sayyidina was also teaching, but he's also showing he wanted to be more beloved to Allah SWT. It's a fascinating thing about Sayyidina He never thought that, okay, I am the greatest Nabi. He still wanted more. Everything he received, he would share it with Hadith with Sahaba, but he wanted to be the first to do Amal on it himself. He was Sahib Amal. He did Amal on the Sunnah. He did Amal on every Hadith himself. And he did Amal, yes, to teach others how to do Amal, but he did Amal because he was also a servant and slave of Allah SWT. First and foremost, he is the servant and slave of Allah SWT. And then also, he is the last and final prophet and messenger. So when Allah Ta'ala told him this, and then he inspired him with this meaning, that the more beloved to Allah SWT, one who is kinder, he always wanted to be the one who was kinder. And mashallah, he always succeeded. <laughs> Allah Ta'ala said in Quran, <laughs> that he is with all believers about the Prophet there's Ruf and Rahim is mentioned in the Quran for Allah SWT as well. But this ayah is talking about Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam that with the believers he is Ruf, which means kind and gentle. And Rahim, he is soft and merciful. Allahu Akbar. Malik ibn Jarrah, Muhammad ibn Wasi went together to the house of Al-Hassan and Basri, but Hassan and Basri wasn't there. So what did they do? They helped themselves. Muhammad ibn Wasi took out a basket of food from the Hassan's bed and started munching on it. And Malik said to him that, no, 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 clap your hands. To fetch the master of the house, Muhammad paid no attention to his words and went on eating. For Malik was more for politeness, more for formality, it means. More for politeness and manners than him. Then Hassan Ayyub said, My dear Malik, we were not used to being so shy of one another till you and your fellows appeared. You started doing takalluf with us. Right? <laughs> you started doing takalluf with us. We were not used to that. We're used to like this. And you can walk in when I'm not around and start eating my food. So with this he indicated to make oneself at home. In one fellow Muslim's homes, that is part of true brotherhood. And this is why, uh, is why Allah SWT said in Quran al-Kareem, and it's mentioning that of which homes you can, the buyut, the homes in which you can enter, you can go into them, that's obviously your own home, or that of your friend, or to which you have the keys. What was the ishara that Imam Muzal explains that for although one brother would give the keys of his house to another, permitting him to act as he saw fit, a brother felt that piety required him to refrain from eating. What happened here is that there was one Sahaba who had given the keys, right, to his home, to another Sahaba. And even though he was trying to show him that, look, my home is like yours, the Sahaba who received the keys, he was still feeling a bit shy, still feeling a bit hesitant. And in his mind, he was thinking that even though he's been so nice to give me the keys, but still it's not nice of me that I should treat his home as my home. So Allah Ta'ala sent wahi down on Quran and said, no, <laughs> You can go and do it freely. If he is opening up his home to you like that and giving you the keys, you should feel that you should be able to go in as freely as you want. So this is the first duty. This is pertaining to material sharing with, sharing our wealth and property and assets with our fellow believers. Second duty. Page 30. Chapter 2. Second fossil. Second duty is to render personal aid in the satisfaction of needs. Personal aid. What does it mean? Not to hire somebody to help. Not to say, okay, I'll call you the cab when you can drive the person yourself. Yes. To render personal aid. To do it yourself. DIY. Huh? That's what you call it in England. Huh? DIY khidmat of your fellow mu'min. You do it yourself. In the satisfaction of their needs to fulfill, in the fulfillment of their needs. Attending to them, again, the same thing that we mentioned. So a few of you came late, I will just show you. Because this is a very important thing. So this was here on page 22. 
if you look at the first indented paragraph, the last line on page 22 of the first indented paragraph, to oblige him to ask is the ultimate shortcoming in brotherly duty. That somebody, your fellow Muslim has a need, and you know of that need, or it should have been your duty to have been informed about that need, but either you neglected to do that duty and be aware of his need, or you knew, but you still waited for him to ask. You waited for him to ask. That is the ultimate neglect of brotherly duty. So here it's saying back to page 30, attending to them without waiting to be asked, and giving them priority over private needs. Give them priority over your own needs. Here too, there are three different, there are different degrees, as in the case of material support. The lowest degree consists in attending to the need when asked and when in plenty. What does it mean that, okay, I'll help this person when they ask me, number one, and number two, when I have time to do so. But if they ask me, right, so this is a classic thing to my experience in this country. Over and over we get this, if you need anything, let me know. I've never responded to any such SMS. And even if I'm in the most dire states of need, I will never respond to such an SMS. But people love to send this. If you need anything, let me know. Allahu Akbar. Ajeeb. Right? So, what do they want? They, they're waiting to be asked. And, if they have time, right? If they have time, that means one in plenty. If they have time, then they will tend to your need. But at least what it is, though, with joy and cheerfulness, showing pleasant gratitude. But if you ask them, and they have time, then they will actually, right, they will actually fulfill your need with joy and cheerfulness, showing pleasant gratitude. So that is a good thing. They have one degree, right? First, we have other towards a fellow believer, that they will generally, happily, joyfully, kindly, generously, showing pleasure and gratitude, do that. Someone said that if you ask your brother to satisfy a need, and he does not do so, then remind him for he may have forgotten. If he still does not do it, pronounce Allahu Akbar over him as if he is a mayyit and recite this verse as for the dead, Allah Ta'ala will raise them up. Allahu Akbar, ajeeb, as if he's dead. This is why they say because the person who's sleeping, if you wake, shake him, he wakes up. And if you shake something and doesn't wake up, it doesn't mean he's sleeping, it means he's dead. So you asked him once, you reminded, you asked the second time, you shook him, he still didn't remember. So you should pronounce Allahu Akbar over them. Ibn Shubrama once satisfied a great need for one of his brothers. Then that brother, then one of his fellow believers, later brought him a present. Later brought Ibn Shubrama a present. So then Ibn Shubrama asked him, what is this? And that other brother said, but this is a present for you because you great favor you did to me. You helped me in that great need. So he said, no, 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 no keep it. May Allah Ta'ala preserve you. If you, and then he told him, that, look, if you ask your brother for something you need, and if he does not exert himself to satisfy your need, then wash for prayers. May make wudu for salah and pronounce four takbir. Praise Allah to Janazah, mock Janazah over him. Pronounce four takbir over him and count him amongst the dead. Allah Akbar Kabira. I think we'd have a lot more Janazahs <laughs> if we were to do Amal on this. Allah Akbar. Jafar ibn Muhammad Rimla said that I make haste to satisfy the needs of my enemies. Allah Akbar. Ajeeb. I make haste to satisfy the needs of my enemies, lest I reject them and they do without me. What does it mean? That enemy means, let's say for example, somebody has envy for you, jealousy for you, did backbiting to you, cutthroat competition in the school, cutthroat competition in the office. You know they have something against you, but you also happen to know they have a need. This 
Say, uh, Jafar ibn Muhammad would actually go and fulfill the need of that person. What would we do? What would we do? We would be completely different. We would be angry. That why does this person have envy and enmity towards me? And then we found out about the need that they have, we'd be happy. Okay, yes, this is good. If he has envy towards me, but good, good. Look, he has this need, he has this suffering. Let him stay like that. Let him stay in that need. That's how we would feel. We would revel and joy in the fact that they had a need that was waiting to be fulfilled. Him, he would go immediately and fulfill the need. Lest I reject them and they do without me. He was worried that what if I reject them and they try to make it without me. I don't want them to be mustaghni of me. It means I don't want them to be independent of me. I don't want them. Even if they're my enemies, they're still my believers. Fellow many. Allahu Akbar Kabeerah. I'll give you another example. And again, I pick on this a lot, but I don't know any particulars of any masjid I go to. I have nothing. I know nothing about this masjid. I think Cambridge is mostly free of this stuff. But some other masajid, Allahu Akbar, committee members, competing for election. Huh? Oh, now one member finds out that the other one has some difficulty. He gets so happy. He's overjoyed. Maybe he'll get caught up in that. Maybe he won't be able to campaign enough. Huh? Maybe he won't be able to get enough votes. Actually, we rejoice at the, when we find out that our enemies have needs. And they, they didn't think like that. Okay, he has enmity towards me, but I'm still his fellow Muslim. He has a need. I will fulfill his need. Allah Akbar. That's how they used to win over the hearts. That's how you used to break these ties. And sometimes, I'll also tell you, sometimes there's a misunderstanding between two people. So that leads to some feeling of hostility, some feeling of resentment. And sometimes that gets so confusing, you can't clear it up. You can't. It's my own experience. Sometimes you go to clean it up, it gets even more confusing. <laughs> you just mess it up. <laughs> you just mess it up. So what you have to do is completely separate from that, you have to do something for them. Now, you may not get that opportunity immediately, but when you get you have to do completely separate from that. And if you do something to them, then Allah unravels the knot on its own because you did something in some other sphere. So if this be the attitude towards enemies and how must they have been towards their friends, how should we be towards their friends? One Muslim in the early days he would see to the maintenance of his brother's wife and children for 40 years after his brother's death, attending to their needs, visiting them daily and providing for them from his wealth, so that they missed only the father's person. They didn't miss the father's care. They didn't miss the father's support because this person was offering that care and support. Now, unfortunately, that's not something that we can talk to you about in this country, but we would just tell you that certain shohada, certain shohada who leave behind, Families, right? This is their right over us. That we should look after their families, look after their children, look after their wife, right? So that yes, they will miss the person. Obviously, that's the personality. That person was their father. So you can never replace that personality. But other than that, all of their needs should be taken care of. They should feel as if they have the support and strength of a man in their house, even if that particular man has been taken up by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? That's what they were like. That's what they're like. Indeed, they were treated, and they would try to treat them so well, indeed they were treated as not even by their own father. Means, not personal love, but maybe means showering with gifts, or showering with support. It was known for a man to go regularly to the door of his brother's household, who had passed away, and inquire from the family widow that he left behind, have you oil, have you salt, is there anything you need? Now, these were staple items, right? Is there anything that you need? Right? And many times they would just drop off, Right? Bags of salt and pouches of oil. 
And if anything was needed, he would... Okay, this is the second example of a person who was living, maybe a person who was traveling away. If anything was needed, he would attend to it, unbeknown to his brother. So this is how brotherhood and compassion are shown. If a man does not manifest compassion towards his brother in the same degree as to himself, then there is no goodness in it. Be as true to others as you are true to yourself. Be as loving to others, as caring for others, as you wish to be cared for yourself. Maimun ibn Mahran, Himullah said, If you reap no benefit from a man's friendship, then his enmity will not hurt you. If you reap no benefit from a man's friendship, his enmity will not hurt you. What does this mean? This is now talking about the reverse side. One side was that we should give, we should care, we should help as much as we can. The second side is that, however, if somebody else is our friend, we shouldn't try to reap benefits. We shouldn't try to extract help from them. We shouldn't. We shouldn't expect it from them, demand it of them, force it out of them. Right? And if you don't do that, that if for some reason that person who is your friend turns into an enemy, you won't lose anything. Right? In terms of personal aid. This whole chapter is about personal aid. You won't lose any khidma or any aid because you weren't taking any aid from him in the beginning. You weren't taking any aid from him in the beginning. Sayyidina Rasulullah said, Surely Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has vessels on this earth, namely our hearts, our kulub, spiritual hearts. And those kulub, those spiritual hearts that are dearest to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, most beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, are the purest and the strongest and the finest. When this is explained, purest means purest from sins. Strongest means strongest in iman. And finest means finest towards their fellow Muslim brothers. In short, Imam Wazayid then comments, In short, your brother's need ought to be like your own, or even more important than your own. You should be on the watch for times of need, not neglecting the situation any more than you would your own. What does it mean that we always watch ourselves? We're checking, am I going to be okay? Will I be able to make this month's finances? Do I have enough for this year? Do I have enough for the summer? Right? We're keeping watch and keeping track of ourselves. So just like that, we should keep track of someone else. And these people also, they were haris. Means that they wanted the opportunity to help others. They were searching, keeping track. They wanted to monitor who and when is in need because they wanted to help that person in need. Right? And we are the opposite. We want not to know to the best of our ability. But if somebody forces us to sit down and broadcast a need to us, then okay, we will feel some type of duty and obligation to help out. You should see that he does not have to ask. And you can see over and over Imam Ghazanat is repeating this. You should see that he does not have to ask, nor to reveal his need to appeal for help. Rather, you should attend to it as if you did not know that you had done so. You yourself should not even feel that you helped him. This is a famous hadith of the Prophet that you should give charity, right, with your right hand such as your left hand doesn't even know, Right? So similarly like that, you should help your fellow believer in such a way that even you don't are not self-conscious and not aware that you helped him. You should not see yourself as having earned any right by virtue of what you have done. You shouldn't feel that now you're entitled to that person's support. You shouldn't even feel that you're entitled to that person's love or their appreciation or their gratitude. You should never do something for someone with that intention. What does it mean that you're going to make that person indebted to you? Whether it's financially indebted to you. It could mean emotionally indebted to you. In terms of gratitude, gratefulness, thankfulness indebted to you. We should never think like that. 
but rather we should count it as a blessing and a kindness from him that he did an ihsan on me. It was his favor to me. I'm indebted to him that he has allowed me a chance to help him. I'm indebted to him that he accepted a favor from me on his behalf and he allowed me to attend and show my attention to his affairs and matters. You should not confine yourself to simply merely satisfying his need, but you should try from the start to be even more generous, more generous, to prefer him and to put him before your own relatives and children. What does it mean? Right, so if he needs 10 pounds, you should give him 20. Why do you keep him on this borderline situation? <laughs> right? Why do you keep him on the borderline situation? Only help him so much so that he didn't fall, but you're not helping him to walk. You just picked him up, but you're not enabling him to walk. Right? Al-Hassan al used to say that our brothers are dearer to us than our own families and our own children. Because our families remind us of this world where our brothers remind us of the Akhirah. Ajib? What does it mean that this relationship which is Khalisatan Lillah Fillah, that relationship that is solely, exclusively in the name of Allah SWT, for the sake of Allah SWT, whenever we sit with those people, all we think about is Allah Ta'ala and Akhirah. And when we sit with family, although that aspect is there, but there's also a worldly aspect to our family relationship. Worldly aspect to our family relationship. So don't get this wrong. This does not mean Allah is saying you should have any disdain for your family. Very high love and enjoyment for family. But even higher than that was the enjoyment they got from those relationships that were purely for the sake of, purely and exclusively for the sake of Allah SWT. Al-Hassan Basri also used to say that if a man stands by his brother all the way to the end, right until the end climax of whatever need, difficulty is afflicting him, then the day of resurrection, the day of judgment, Allah SWT sent angels from beneath his throne to escort that person to Jannah. Then, whenever a person, a tradition again does not mean hadith, the way he's translated in English, just is what we call khabar, right? Uh, the early Muslim, not prophetic tradition, early Muslim tradition, tells that whenever a person visits their brother, fellow Muslim, longing to meet them, so they go to visit their fellow believer out of love and longing and yearning to meet them. Then an angel calls out from behind and says that you have done well and it should be well for you in the garden of paradise. Why are they saying this, right? This is not a deed. So how could you say only Allah Ta'ala and the Apostle can tell us what the angels say. How could a person say what an angel says? So sometimes when you see narrations like this, what it means is they're giving an emotional expression to a hakika or reality that is mentioned in deed. So I'll give you an example. Sayyidina Rasulullah said in hadith, number one, that when you help your fellow Muslim in any need, then Allah Ta'ala will help you in your need. Number two, that when you make dua for any fellow Muslim, make dua for any fellow Muslim, then Allah Ta'ala sends an angel. This is hadith, right? When you make dua for any fellow Muslim, Allah Ta'ala sends an angel. And that angel says three things. Ameen, walaka, ameen. So you made dua for X. Allah Ta'ala sent angel, angel said Amin to your du'a for X. Then angel said Walaka and the angel made du'a for you. Same du'a you made for X. Then angel then made du'a for you. And then again angel says Amin, the angel says Amin on its own du'a. So what did X get? X got your du'as and angels Amin. What did you get? You got angels du'a and angels Amin. So you actually got something better. <laughs> you actually got something better. So it's because of that then sometimes we'd express it this way. That when you're helping or making du'a, then the angel would come and he would say like that, right? That you have done well and it should be well for you in general.
Atai ibn Abi Raba, another one of the great Tabin, he said, seek out your brothers after three occasions. One is that you must visit. Number one, if they are sick. It's called Iyadatul Murid. Iyadatul Murid, you should visit the sick and ill. If they are busy, help them. If you see them, they are just caught up in so much business. And you have some forsa, some faragha, some free time. Try to help them. And if they have forgotten, remind them. It's a very important thing. <laughs> Especially if they have forgotten Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Remind them. If they have forgotten the sunnah of their beloved Nabi Kareem sallallahu remind them. وَذَكِّرْ فَإِنَّ ذِكْرَ تَنْفَعُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ Allah you must remind. Because indeed reminding benefits the believers. You must recollect and remind because that recollection reminding benefits believers. That ayah is the basis for all courses, all talks, all lectures. It's not enough just to read Quran and hadiths on your own. Why is it not enough? Because Allah Ta'ala said in Quran, وَذَكِّرْ Allah Ta'ala commanded some individuals that they should make nasiha, they should give advice, they should counsel, admonish, remind. Why? Because indeed that reminder, تَنْفَعُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ That act of reminding is of great benefit to the believers. So three things. When they're sick, when they're busy, and when they have forgotten. And as if they have forgotten Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, doesn't mean we should forget them. If they have forgotten deen, and there are many ways to do this type of da'wah. There's no one particular jamaat exclusively who can do da'wah. Right? But we should have this da'wah aspect in our life. And a lot of us, we're very slack in this. There are people in our sphere, our circle, right? Our circle of interaction. Some of them even are close enough that we could say they're under sphere of influence even. But we don't remind them at all. MashaAllah, Vesa, I have to say, some of the brothers in Tabliki Jamaat are very good about this. They won't leave any stone unturned. They go in box and they get a haircut. Within one minute, oh, they're talking to the barber. <laughs> Before you know it, the barber is being given full bayan about Allah Taala, And most of us, we would just sit there and won't say anything. That was an interaction. Every interaction is an opportunity. Yes, some people feel that okay, they were too over. Maybe sometimes, yes. You may, you may even be watching, sitting there waiting, and you be thinking in your cynical, sarcastic way, oh look at this barber. Clearly the barber is so annoyed. The barber is really getting annoyed. Sometimes you have to annoy somebody. Yes. Sometimes you have to annoy them. Yes, he's getting annoyed at that moment. But he maybe have forgotten Allah Ta'ala so much, that that reminder, maybe right there about cutting the hair, he cannot respond to the call of that reminder. But maybe in a few weeks, Allah Ta'ala may send him some tests. May Allah Ta'ala is going to shake him up. That he may remember some of the words that that brother told him. He remembers some words of that da'wah. That brother opened a door for him at that moment. He's not willing to walk through that door at that moment. But the door was shown to him, whether he liked it or not. And later on, there may come a time when he's willing to walk through that door. He will remember that door. So I'm not saying always and every time in every situation. How much to do it requires hikmah, requires wisdom. But most of us, we leave every opportunity go. Everyone. Every barber, every taxi driver, every Muslim we interact with, we don't say any word of nasihat to them. Shouldn't be like that either, right? Shouldn't be like that. Every now and then, chat the person up a little bit, if you get the opportunity, say a little bit. Maybe don't say so much, don't be going to go overzealous, but say a couple of lines, a couple of words. Share something you heard, share some ayah of Qur'an, Share some hadith of Sayyidina Rasulullah Share some words of nasiha. Share something from your own life. Make him personally close. Offer him something. Something. Maybe he'll bite. You'll never know. You never know. You cannot assess outwardly that no, no, he looks uninterested. 
How do you have no way of knowing? Can you see inside the hearts and breasts of people that they're uninterested? Offer something. And even if he displays disinterest, you never know. You left it there for him. It's food for thought. Maybe he'll take a bite later. Maybe he'll take a bite later. So if they've forgotten, remind them. If they've forgotten, remind them. And the first intention to make, I'm actually reminding myself. So if nothing else, I may bite. <laughs> I heard this thing. I don't do Amalina myself. But you know, when I told it to the barber that day, I realized that I should better do Amalina myself. So I bit. <laughs> I bit. <laughs> I bite my own dawa. <laughs> yes? <laughs> Alright? So these are the three rights. It is related that Ibn Umar was looking about to right and left. He was looking around in front of Sayyidina Rasulullah So the Prophet asked him the reason. That, yeah. Ibn Umar, what are you doing? So he said that there is someone beloved to me and I am searching for him, but I don't see him. So maybe he was thinking that Sayyidina Rasulullah is sitting with us and he's going to talk to us. And where's that favorite friend, Sahaba of mine? He's missing out. <laughs> so he's looking around, looking, where's my friend? Well, where did he go? He was just here. And the Prophet came out and he's sitting in Masjid Nabi and he's going to talk to us and oh, where did my friend go? Allah <laughs> Akbar, looking around. So, Sayyidina Rasulullah said that, okay, look, if you love someone, then you should ask his name, his father's name, where he lives, and if he is sick, visit him, and if he's busy, help him. What does it mean that it suggests that Sayyidina didn't know how to find this person? Maybe he was thinking, oh, last time the Prophet came out, there was a beautiful Sahabi from Yemen, he was sitting with me, and we listened to Hadith and Prophet together. And now the Prophet came out again, I'm looking for him. So the Prophet said, no, it's not enough just to be fond of him. You should have gotten to know him. This, that's what it's saying. Ta'aruf. Ta'aruf who? That you should have gotten to know him. You should have asked his name. You should have asked his father's name. Went to identify. You should have asked where uh, where he lives. <laughs> you should have been able to. So why? Because otherwise if he's sick, how are you going to visit him? If you don't know who he is, what his name is, where he lives. If he has a need, how will you find out to help him? How will you keep track of him? How can you keep track of whether he needs your help if you have no idea what his name is? It happens many times. Sometimes I go a place and I ask, oh, do you know that person? Even right now, a person will come to talk to me. I ask Mushfik, do you know this person? Says, no, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Oh, yes, you know, sometimes I've seen him in the masjid. Okay, what's his name? I've never talked to him. I never asked him his name. The one who knows his name, oh, okay, what does he do? Oh, I've never asked him. Allah <laughs> Akbar. Yes? Triple one? I say it. Hmm? Huh? Sayyidina Rasulullah teaching Sayyidina Abdullah bin Umar Radhan Huma. And by the way, I've seen these are some very special hadith. The hadith that Sayyidina Abdullah bin Umar Radhan Huma narrates, but narrates about his own interaction with the Prophet. It seems maybe because he was quite young that Sayyidina Rasulullah has a very special, what we call in Urdu Andazi Tarbiyat, a special way of training him. It's a very distinct, maybe we should collect the Arbaheen of this, with this Nisbat one day, right? But very special. So then when you know that, then if he is sick, you can visit him. <laughs> because you know who he is and where he lives. And if he is busy, you can help him. And another riwayah, if we write an ukhra, another narration of that hadith mentions the words, and you should ask the name of his grandfather, that of his tribe, you should really do ta'araf, you should really get to know him. He's your fellow believer. Your fellow believer. So today we have, is the work brothers have arrived? Or not yet? So work in Cambridge, huh? It shouldn't be that when you get back on the bus and go home, yeah, who is that brother with the blue shirt? Oh, yeah, yeah, I saw him. And you've asked his name? No. Ask his name. <laughs> Ask him what he does, where he lives. Right? MashaAllah.
You have Mahajan and Ansar for a day. We can pair you off. Huh? Warwick and Cambridge, Isaac. Ajit, Lakishan. Ashabi, Rimullah said, if a man who keeps the company of another, then says he knows his face, but what time is the hurry? 1 or 1 15, 1 30? 1? Okay. Ashabirimla said, if a man who keeps the company of another, then says he knows his face but not his name. They say in Urdu, Yes, <laughs> look, it's a word. Hundreds of years ago, that I know his face but I don't know his name. So what did he say? That a man who keeps the company of another, then says he knows his face but not his name, that is the knowledge of fools. Allah what type of people were they? <laughs> and what type of people are we? Hmm? That is the knowledge of fools. Sayyidina bin Abbas was asked, Who is the dearest, most beloved of people to you? And he said, One who sits in my company. Sohma. It's two-way. Two-way love. So when Allah Ta'ala said in Quran, Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu taqullaha wa kunu ma sadiqeen Telling us that we should adopt taqwa and we should keep and sit with the sadiqeen. We should Feel something for those sadiqeen. We are learning from here. Those sadiqeen feel something back for us. And why is Imam Ghazali mentioning this? Imam Ghazali is mentioning. Well, let me just finish. He also said that if someone sits in my company three times without having need of me, I learn where he is placed in the world. Sayyidim Allah said that I owe my sitting companion three things. On his approach, I greet him. On his arrival, I make him welcome. When he sits, I make him comfortable. Allah <laughs> Akbar. What does it mean? They honored the sitting with one another. And if we used to love to sit with them, they also used to love it if we sat with them. Right? Allah SWT said that Ruhama, they are full of rahma, full of mercy to one another. This is when in the eye of Karma Allah Ta'ala is describing the feelings that believers have for one another. So Imam Ghazayat comments that these words point to compassion and generous treatment. Part of complete compassion, now just a side little end point that maybe had occurred to him towards the end of this vessel, part of complete compassion is not to partake in solitude of delicious food, to go eat your chocolate ice cream secretly in the corner alone. Yeah? <laughs> Allah Akbar. Nor to see I'm guilty that night, having cookies and cream, Ben and Jerry's ice cream alone when kids are sleeping. Huh? So nor to enjoy alone an occasion of happiness. Rather should the brother's absence be distressing and the separation sad. And you find this when you look at the tales of the lovers of Allah SWT for the sake of lovers of one another for the sake of Allah SWT. They would be in a gathering enjoying but they would say X is missing. Then the fact that X is missing would make them sad. Hmm? Where is our Sayyid Farooq? Hmm? They would be sad. Allah So, not to partake in solitude. That if Allah Ta'ala has given you a happiness to share that happiness. And when you share that happiness, you will multiply that happiness. When Allah Ta'ala has given you a joy, not to enjoy alone an occasion of happiness, but you should enjoy. That's why it's on our deen. Sunnah walima. Huh? Let's look at that enjoyment. Young men wanting to get married in this room. Hmm? So when Allah Ta'ala gives you that joy, you don't want to just share that joy alone. Hmm? No. Our deen doesn't have... Okay, you can do honeymoon, but maybe after walima. Right? But in our deen, the first expression of the joy is to share that joy proclaim that joy announce that nikah right gather people to a meal and show them how happy you are Allah share the joy alright
Pestle number three. Third duty concerns the tongue. So first duty was financially helping out, sharing in one's property, wealth, assets, possessions. Second duty was helping. What Imam Ghazali was called personal aid. Right? Third duty concerns the tongue. Third duty towards our fellow mu'mineen, fellow believers concerns the tongue. Which sometimes the duty requires that the tongue should be silent. And other times the duty towards our fellow Muslim requires that we should speak out. It's going to take some learning and some hikmah and wisdom and dua al-Islam even sometimes to figure out when is the occasion to be silent and when is the occasion to speak out. The Imam al-Ghazalim is going to help us here. Number one, as for silence, what? when should the tongue be silent? Number one, the tongue should not mention a brother's faults in his absence or in his presence. In his absence, all of you know that it's called ghibah, or in his presence. Now, it's not saying that if you have such a relationship with that person, let's say your younger brother, that in his presence, but alone, not to expose him, not to embarrass him, not simply to shout at him, but rather to rectify him, to guide him, that you discuss a fault of his with him, that's okay. But it means by here mention that you broadcast, that you expose that person's faults. Whether they are there in front of you and you expose him live in front of others, or you expose him in his absence, that is not something that a person's tongue can do. So you have to keep your tongue silent at that time. Rather should you feign ignorance. It means rather you should feign... What does it mean? If somebody asks you, that, Oh, you know so-and-so. I heard that, bro, I heard that Brother X did this. And even though you know, you also know that he did it. You should say, Oh, really? Allahu Alam. Allahu Alam. Close the discussion at the start. As opposed to, yeah, I, oh, you know, I know he did acts, but he also did why? <laughs> that's, that's how we do. <laughs> no. So, oh, really? Allahu Alam. Allah knows best. That's always a correct statement. Even if you know, <laughs> you're not denying that you may know, but you're saying, Allahu A'lam. Allah knows more. Allah knows better. Allah knows best. Oh, really? Allahu Alam. You should feign ignorance. You should not contradict him when he talks nor dispute, nor argue with him. You should not pry and quiz him about his affairs. On seeing him in the street or about some business, you should not start a conversation about the object of your coming and going. Nor ask him about his, about this, it should say. Ask him about this. For perhaps it will be troublesome to him for, to discuss it. Or may have to lie about it. Oh, dude, where are you going? Nowhere. What do you mean, nowhere? Obviously he's going somewhere. If he says nowhere to you, means that he doesn't want to share it with you. But you don't give him a second. <laughs> what do you mean nowhere? Where are you coming from? <laughs> now he gets more embarrassed. Now he gets more embarrassed. Oh, bounce. Huh? What difference does it make to you where he's going? His right to you when you met him on the street was simply that you say salam to him. Not that he has to disclose completely where he's going, where he's coming from, what he's about to do, why he's going, why he's coming later. Hey, I saw you last night on that place. What were you doing? <laughs> this is, I say, don't have this curiosity. Even if, and I'm saying, I know that people may not ask this question with a bad intention necessarily. It's not malicious intent. But another, the Prophet is training us. For example, Sayyidina Muslim said in a hadith, مَنْ حُسْنِ إِسْلَامِ الْمَعْدِي تَرْكُ مَا لَا يَعْنِهِ 
that from the beauty, nobility, excellence of the deen of Islam of a person, is that they're not concerned, they leave things that don't concern them. So where he was coming, what he was doing, where he was last night, unless there's some particular, there may be some particular reason may that may be of concern to you, right? But 99% of the time it's not. So you shouldn't ask, because maybe it will be troublesome. Look at Imam Muzayr Hikman 900 years ago. Still valid today. Perhaps it will be troublesome to discuss it. Or he may even have to lie about it. Maybe he did something that's so embarrassing. When you put him on the spot, you say, what were you doing there? He may, he shouldn't lie. Not excusing for him. But because you put him so much on the spot, he ended up lying. To cover up for himself. But you put him in that position. Right? You put him in that position. And if it's something that he wants to share with you, he'll share with you himself. Right? And she, look at the other, they were people you have to think carefully. They viewed every interaction with every fellow Muslim as not something to take lightly or take for granted. They knew we have to husn a They have to have the most noble way of dealing with this person. So I have to be conscious. What should I say? What should I not say? Not nervous. Not unnatural. Right? But once a person is trained in these adab, they come naturally. Why? Because this is some one of the gift of iman. That every person Allah Ta'ala has gifted with iman the sunnah, adab, and akhlaq come naturally to them. They just have to learn it. They have to practice it a little bit. Then it will flow naturally from them. That's the gift that we have that we're the ummati of Sayyidina Rasulullah Now at first time you hear it, it may seem a bit difficult to do. Don't worry. Once you learn it, you practice it once or twice, it will flow naturally in ease. You will become your personality. Yes, that's the power of deen. Power of deen of Islam. Is it if you want the personality of Sayyidina Rasulullah can be your personality. means his temperament, his outlook, his mannerism, his kindness, his compassion, his way of dealing with people. That can become our way of dealing with people. If we want to follow his sunnah, his teachings of adab and akhlaq. Oh. Now if we became like that with one another, then you know how united the ummah would be. Hmm? Don't get me wrong, they would still have differences. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. It's never meant that in Ummah. Sahaba Ikram had differences. Unity never means uniformity. Unity means unity. You don't understand. <laughs> unity is something else altogether. Something else altogether. <laughs> Keep silent also. Okay, so that was one way to be silent. Right? Actually, there were a few things in there. Not to mention false and absence and presence. Not to contradict or dispute. Third, that you should not pry and quiz about his affairs. Number four. Keep silent also about the secrets that he confides in you and on no account divulge them to a third party, not even to his closest friends. So this is the hadith Sayyidina Rasulullah said, Al-Majalusu Bil-Amana. So some of you may be wondering that in this few lines, I've mentioned several hadith to you and Imam I didn't mention them to you. So why doesn't he so? This is our contemporary problem. We expect that everything should be extremely well documented in reverence with hadith. And it's understandable for us. But Imam al-Ghazayr after his time and the people he was talking to, they all knew hadith. Hadith was standard education for a Muslim. Every hadith I'm saying to you, they all knew it. <laughs> so these types of books and works were just to take them to the final step to live those hadith and to feel those hadith. The purpose of these books was not to teach them the hadith. For us, because many of us don't know hadith. So actually it would be nice that in the translation we could add those hadith so along with getting Imam Ghazali's help about living and feeling the Hadith, we could actually do the knowing of the Hadith as well because we don't know them. 
But you should understand that it's not Imam Zainab that didn't know Hadith, or he wasn't concerned with Hadith, or he's just like talking his own words. No. He's talking to an audience that knows Hadith. And in fact, the vast majority, if not all, of his works were addressed at ulama. Ulama who were formal students and scholars of Hadith. He was trying to get them to feel, and many of his other works, he addresses them point blank, directly by name. And chastises them that you spent so many years studying and you still don't feel it. You spent so many, you, what have you gotten from the sunnah? You have known thousands of hadith and you still don't have that other. Oh, he goes after them by name and by point by point. So you should remember. And he does that in many other places in the ahya. And in fact, this is universally accepted by all Muslim and non-Muslim historians that ahya ulumuddin was written primarily by Imam Azharat primarily for the ulama. It's just a tragedy to ulama don't read it anymore. That's another tragedy. Right? Tragedy. Right? So he's addressing people who know all those hadith. And he's now counseling them on the amal. So he's not trying to give them ilm of the hadith, giving them the amal. Alright. So, Al-Majalusi bil Amana, that is hadith for Sayyidina Rasulullah said that your literally it means gatherings, but it means even the conversations really that you have with one another are an amana. Unless it's understood that you're talking about something that is not in any way, requires confidentiality. What does it mean that don't even talk about it to your close friends? For example, you may be friends with someone. You may be friends with Abdullah. Abdullah is also friends with X. Abdullah tells you, just as an example I'm giving you, that Abdullah tells you that, oh, you know, I lost my scholarship for next year. Alright, and then maybe he has some discussion with you about that. Don't assume... Because outwardly you think Abdullah is equally close friends with X. Don't assume Abdullah has told X. So when you say X, don't say, Hey, did you hear Abdullah lost his scholarship? He'll say no. <laughs> Many times he'll say no. So you've breached a trust. When Abdullah told you, he was telling you. He wasn't telling you to tell X even. Even his closest friends. In fact, if he's a close friend, then Abdullah will tell him in his own way, in his own time. Right? So we have this habit in ourselves a bit too much. Broadcasting. You know they saw the news broadcast, right? So we hear and we broadcast. So this is what the Prophet Even without explicit, it doesn't mean that only if the person explicitly tells you, no, but Abdullah didn't tell me not to tell anybody else. He didn't tell you not to tell accept it. He didn't explicitly tell you not to tell anybody else. Abdullah didn't tell you not to tell anybody else. Yes. But your Nabi, Sayyidina Rasulullah, he told you not to tell anybody else. When he told you, Al Majalasu bin Amana. Right? He told you not to tell anybody else. Now, if Abdullah had told you not to tell anybody else, you wouldn't have told anybody else. If your Prophet is telling you not to tell anybody else, you'd better not tell anybody else. So it's about our habits. We have too loose of a tongue. Too loose of a tongue. So do not reveal anything about those secrets. Not even after separation and estrangement. What does that mean? Let's say you're no longer friends with that person. For whatever reason, misunderstanding happens. You part ways. I know, I know. One ten, inshallah. Yeah. So, uh, you should not... Uh, even after separation and estrangement, even then you should not betray him. You shouldn't think that the confidentiality agreement and relationship was only when we were friends. And now we're not such close friends, no? It's lifelong. It's a lifelong amana. For to do so would be meanness of character. It means it would be spite. 
If you kept something secret while you were a friend, and you no longer friends and you reveal it, it means it's just bughs. It's ghil. It's just malice and spite retribution. You're just doing it to be mean. That's a very bad thing. So, for example, you roommates with someone. And what that person does in that flat, that's not the business of the entire ISOC. They're sharing close quarters with you, so you may get to see certain things about them. You may get to know them more intimately. Those intimate details or close personal details of their lifestyle, their habits, their character are not meant for you. He doesn't have to tell you about every single thing that don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody that. It's understood. Al-Majalusa bil amana That you're not supposed to share and broadcast these things to other people. Alright? So we'll stop over here. You have 15 minutes. I'll call the Adhan and pray the Sunnahs. So we're on page 35.